الحمد لله الحمد لله رب العالمين والصلاة والسلام على خاتم الأنبياء أشرف المرسلين وعلى آله وأصحابه أجمعين أما بعد In the time before the seerah really begins يعني before the birth of Rasulullah صلى الله عليه وسلم In those things that are متعلق that are related to the Prophet صلى الله عليه وسلم we were talking about At-Tubba' and his dream where he had seen that somebody from Habasha, from Abyssinia would come and conquer their land. And under the leadership of Iriyat and Abraha and Najashi, that dream had come true. And we spoke about how Abraha killed Iriyat and how Najashi became upset and Al-Qulais was built to try to please Najashi and so on. And with the disrespect of the Qulais that was built by the Arab tribes, Abraha had now taken upon a task with the blessings of Najashi, the emperor of Abyssinia, to attack Al-Kaaba, Baytullah Al-Haram. We know this, I and mean, as Muslims, usually we know this. I mean, alhamdulillah, we read Surah Fil and so on. But there are many things that we miss, and, and many things that are very important to understand. And that's why we're going to go through this today, inshaAllah. Before I discuss the, uh, the incident, I'm going to summarize between what the different kutub have mentioned. But I do want to mention, first and foremost, that this part of history is established by the Qur'an itself. Because if you read Surah Fil, you will find what happened with the Ashab al-Fil, yani the people that came with elephants. So there is no doubt as Muslims to the authenticity of what happened because it's in the Qur'an itself. Having said that, you also have many marfu' ahadith, yani where Rasulullah sallallahu told us about aspects of what happened during this time. We have many mawquf ahadith, yani from the Sahaba radiyanhum that explained, including some that we'll, that we'll talk about inshallah, like for example Aisha radiyanha that said she saw some of the people from that army, and then we'll talk about when that comes and Asma radiallahu anha, who actually had a collection of that which was sent to destroy them. So we have many authentic narrations. But even if we look at Western historians in their Orientalist mindsets, they also admit that there was a king named Abraha, and they talk about the names and Najashi and the time periods, and they match up as well. Regarding his attacking of the Kaaba, we'll talk about history uh, from a Western perspective and obviously from an Islamic perspective about that as well. Abraha, as we know from the authentic historic documentation, he took 13 elephants, the strongest, the super tank, the super weapon, the secret, uh, you could say of the time, being Mahmud, uh, the very, very strong, big elephant that led the pack. On his way from Yemen. Now he's starting off from Yemen, but he doesn't know how to get to Mecca. And nowadays, when you go to Mecca, where do you go? You, start, you find the nice freeways, you see the big signs, you know, see the big gates, you got GPSs, but they didn't have any of this. And this is all desert. So he didn't have. So what he did is he would start out and he would wait for the Arab tribes. And the Arab tribes, they realized that he was going to go destroy the Kaaba. And even though they were mushrikeen at the time, but from the time of Ibrahim السلام, and Ismail السلام, they had ta'adheem, they, they had a respect and honor they used to give to Baytullah. So 
all the Arab tribes tried to stop Abraha. They tried to fight him. And as we know historically, none of them succeeded. Abraha defeated them one after the other. And he would take from them prisoners and he would use those prisoners as guides to try to get to which way the, yani the Kaaba is, which is in Mecca. One of them that is mentioned in the Kutub of Tariq, like Ibn Kathir and Al-Dahbi and others have mentioned, is Dhu Nafr. Uh, and he was from the Ashraf of Ahlul Yemen, from the people of Yemen, who was very honored. And him and his tribe, they fought and they were defeated and he was taken as a prisoner. They continued to fight until they got to a tribe that they defeated with a, with a man named Nufail ibn Habib. Nufail ibn Habib, and he is mentioned in many of the history books, authentic narrations, uh, remember that name. And he will come up again. Nufail ibn Habib was taken as a prisoner. He was about to be executed. He told the king, what does it benefit you to execute me? So Abraha said, we will take you, but on the shart, on the condition that you show us the way. So Nufail, as a prisoner of war, showed them the way as well. Until they reached Ta'if, the city of Ta'if. And in Ta'if, the Thaqif, Qabila, they came out, but they, instead of fighting Abraha, as the other Qabail, uh, other tribes had done, they said, we are not here to fight you. Thaqif, they said, we will not fight you. Why? Because you're going to destroy Al-Kaaba, Baytullah, that's okay. Just don't mess with our Baba or our Peer, our Lat, our Saint, our Idol. Just don't mess with Lat. Now, Abraha, he had nothing to do with Lat. He wanted to destroy the Kaaba so the people would stop making Hajj to Mecca and they would come to Yemen. So he told them, you keep your Idol, no problem. And this is very interesting. Uh, Abraha here is at this time... A cla- and he claims to be following the religion of Isa ibn Mari. Right? Even though we know the Christians at this time had already corrupted the religion. But he's not worried about them being idol worshippers. He's not worried about them making shirk. He's not worried about them being another religion. All he's worried about is his political goal. Right? The Muslim, we worry about Tawheed. Yani we worry about the fact that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is the only one that has the haqq to be worshipped. We worry about eradicating, I mean, I mean Muslims, like, not everybody with the title, but a Muslim, right? We worry about, we want shirk to finish in the world, right? But many Muslims, because uh, the weakness of Iman, they're not worried about shirk anymore. And they see shirk, they're like, ah, so what's wrong with that? It's okay, they see somebody, he's gay, so what? He's this, so what? What does that bother me? Where's my political alliance? No, 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 this is not the way of the Muslim. The way of the Muslim is not worried about political alliances. We are worried about establishing the haqq of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala on the ard. So here we see Abraha, he tells him, keep your idol, no problem. But now he's a ta'if, he says, I need to get to Mecca. The Thaqif Qabila, they gave him a guide. And, and the one who came out, according to Ibn Ishaq and Ibn Hisham and all of them, is Mas'ud. He was one of the Thaqafi, one of the leaders of the Thaqif tribe. And subhanAllah, if you know Mustala al-Hadith and Ilm al-Rijal, you will know that Urwa ibn Mas'ud al-Thaqafi is a great Sahabi. So this Mas'ud al-Thaqafi, the one who went and betrayed Mecca, betrayed Baytullah, subhanAllah, his son later will become a great companion of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. 
But Mas'ud ibn Mu'tib, uh, al-Thaqafi, he said, we will give you Abu Rughal. Some of the kutub of tarikh have him with Abu Rughal. But khair, Abu Rughal was a famous traitor amongst the Arab. And even uh, there's a hadith of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi from the Prophet in Sunnah Nabi Dawood, where he said there should be rajam, like, like the people should stone, like the stoning the Arab do to the grave of Abu Rughal. And where does that come from? A tradition developed where he died, that the Arab, when they would go by, they would throw stones and rocks at his grave to show their disrespect towards him because he betrayed the Arab and betrayed the Baytullah. And this is something interesting to remember in history. Uh, one of the great uh, kings and conquerors of the Muslims, later, later, much later on, you have Ahmed Shah Abdali and you have Mahmoud al-Ghaznavi and these people who conquered India. And when they conquered India, they took a lot of gold and statues and things, and every time they were offered to sell them. The Hindus would say, sell them to us. And alhamdulillah, they didn't. They broke them, but they didn't sell them. Because they said, we don't want to be remembered in history as the sellers of idols. We want to be remembered as those that broke the idols. Abu Rughal at that time must have thought that I have honored myself. You know, like, like I'm not going to be killed. I'm not going to be captured. I am the guide to the greatest army the Arabian Peninsula has ever seen. Elephants behind him. Abraha behind him. 60,000 force behind him. He must have thought that. But subhanAllah, when you sell out, when you betray, what happens in the end? You become disgraced. You think, I'm going to go and help out with translations or whatever. I'm going to be a hero. But what's going to happen later? Is how will you be remembered in history when Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala brings the nusra for the believers? So here, even though the people of Mecca are mushrikeen at this time, but Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala doesn't need anybody. See, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is not in need of anybody. Abu Rughal, he was the guide, he continued to guide Abraha to Mecca. And we find him in Sahih uh, Ahadith being mentioned, as I mentioned from Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wasallam. He got to an area called Al-Mughammas, which is in current day uh, Mina. And when you go for Mina, Al-Mughammas is actually there. And this is where he died, and this is where his grave was made. And the Arab would then go and stone his grave. But now, Mina, you're very close to Mecca. So they knew how to get to Mecca from there. Here now, Abraha, standing with his force, he sends out a message to the people of Mecca. Do you want to fight? Or do you want to surrender? Because I'm going to destroy Baytullah. I'm going to destroy the Kaaba. At this time, the people of Mecca obviously are no match. And remember, they are mushrikeen. They are not... Mu'mineen at this time, they're not believers. So there is no like jihad, fi sabilillah or something. No, I mean, they're people of shirk. So they decide we're not going to fight. And yani, here, he says to send for them, their leader to come speak to him. Now, the Quraysh had no king. The Arabs were not in the system of a kingdom. They had chieftains, they had, they had tribal elders. And the most respected of them was Abdul Muttalib. Abdul Muttalib, as we know from the lineage of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wasallam, knowing back he was the grandfather of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam. But what is correct is that he was not a Muslim. And here he is a mushrik. But even being a mushrik, he realized 
certain very important lessons that we as Muslims may have forgotten today. Abdul Muttalib, he wanted to then go and meet with Abraha, but it was very difficult because Abraha was not like sitting around where you can just walk up to him. He had a throne and he had guards and guards for his guards and their guards and their guards. So you couldn't just walk up. So he went and he spoke to Dhunafar. And Dhunafar, we talked about him earlier, who was a prisoner, an Arab prisoner with the army of Abraha. Dhunafar told him that I am a prisoner, I can't get you to him either. But there is a man named Unais. Unais here was one of the Arab that was with Abraha's army. He told him, Unais, he has the year of Abraha, we can get you to Abraha through Unais. Unais, Dhunafar and Abdul Muttalib then found their way and were allowed to go see Abraha. Abraha used to have, even though he was traveling, but out of his kibber, out of his pride, he would set up a huge throne and nobody was allowed to sit at the same level as him. If you came to see him, he would have a carpet put and you would sit down on the floor on the carpet and he would be sitting on his throne. And the Arab, their style at the time was to sit on the ground anyway. This was their way. So when Abdul Muttalib came, as we find from the Sahih authentic narrations, Abraha, when he saw him, he became impressed. He had a rob, yani a, a, a feeling came over him. Sometimes when you see somebody dignified, that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has given uh, a, a, you know, a, a ru'b. And in Arabic we say that any, there's a presence as we say in English. Right? So when he came, he was a handsome man. He was a well-built man. He was somebody who carried himself with honor. So when he came, Abraha saw this man and he felt as if he should honor him somehow. So he thought, I will have him sit next to me on the throne. But then he realized he couldn't do that because if he had this Arab sit next to him, then the people of Habasha that were with him would say, why is he and he's showing so much respect to this common Arab chieftain? You know, it would kind of throw off his political balance. So he couldn't allow that. And at the same time, he felt this and he need to try to honor him. So what he did is he himself got down and sat on the floor on the carpet next to Abdul Muttalib. When he sat with Abdul Muttalib, he told him, through a translator, obviously he didn't speak Arabic, he told him, what can I do for you? I mean, I'm going to destroy the Kaaba, for sure, I'm here to destroy it, but what can I do for you? Abdul Muttalib told him, you have, your armies have captured 200 of my camel. 200 of my camel. They belong to me, and I'm asking you to release them, they're my property. So he became upset. Abraha here became upset. He said, you know, when I saw you, I was impressed. I, I had this, you know, feeling that you were somebody of honor and respect. And I got down from my throne and sat next to you. But now I think you're a fool. Like I lost all that respect. I'm about to destroy Baytullah. I'm about to destroy your Kaaba. I'm about to destroy your holiest site. And you're worried about your camels? Abdul Muttalib told him, Ana Rabbil Ibl. Yani, I am the Rabb, I am the Lord of the Ibl. And Lil Bayt Rabban. And the Bayt has a Rabb. In some of the narrations, yani, it mentions Sahib al Ibl and so on. But the meaning here is the same, which is that I am the Lord of the camels. Protecting them is my responsibility. This Bayt, Baytullah, has a Rabb. And that Rabb will protect it. Right? 
Subhanallah, now he's a mushrik here. And he doesn't know uh, the Quran has not been revealed. He's not upon the religion of Isa ibn Maryam and so on. But even then he realized that Allah will protect what he deems to be holy. Today we get worried, like we get worried, oh if we don't sell out, if we don't do this, if we don't do that, then Muslims will finish and Islam will finish and they'll destroy this. And no, we as Muslims have responsibilities. We need to fulfill our responsibility. We need to speak the truth. We need, with hikmah, obviously, but we need to work towards what is righteousness, what, is, what Allah has ordained upon us and never worry that Islam will finish, or the Kaaba will finish, or, or, or Mecca will finish, or Salah will finish. No, Allah will protect it. This mushrik understood this when we have forgotten this lesson. Abdul Muttalib, here, his words had an effect on Abraha. Ibn Sa'd and others, they record that Abraha here wanted to go back. He became afraid. Those words resonated with him. So he told his generals and stuff, he said, you know what, we've come all this way, we've made all these victories, yeah, let's just go back now. <laughs> his generals are like, what? <laughs> and then we made all these sacrifices, months and months of travel and fought all these Arab tribes and all this. We told them we're going to destroy. When you go back to Najashi, what are you going to say? Right? So Abraha's like, all right, well, forget it then. I guess we got to do this, right? <laughs> so he decides to give Abdul Muttalib his 200 camels back. And from the effects of his words. Now the Arab tribes here, as Ibn Kathir and others have mentioned, that they offered some of the tribes one third of their wealth and gold and all of that to Abraha. But Abraha was rich. And he had Yemen, he had Najashi and his kingdom in, in, in Abyssinia was rich at the time. The Arabs couldn't offer him anything. He refused all of that. He said, there is nothing that will take me back except to destroy the Kaaba brick by brick till it's gone. So, with his kibr, he started to move forward. Abdul Muttalib, at this time he went to Mecca and he ordered the people of Mecca to leave. He said, look, if they're going to come here, we know that Allah will protect al-bayt. But I don't want that the army uh, disrespects the women or kills people or massacres or does something like this. So all of the women and children and people leave. And some of the narrations, even though they are not with Sanad, yani we, we don't have chains of narrations here, but they mentioned that they tied some animals by the Kaaba, hoping that the army will, will steal these, and because they were dedicated to the Kaaba, that the army would be destroyed. This is how much they had yani a yaqeen that Allah will protect that which has been given for the sake of Allah. Here, at this time, the attack began. Right? Some of the ulema of tarikh said that Rasulullah was born on that day, Yom al-Fil. Across the board, the ulema of tarikh said the Prophet was born that year, Am al-Fil, this year. That, that across the board, you will find that they will agree. But what day exactly, we don't know. What I found to be most correct amongst the writings of the ulema of tarikh, and this is not this is not something where we have a hadith from Rasulullah on, is that Rasulullah was born about 50 days after that day. This is what we find the majority and the strongest opinion amongst the ulema of tarikh. But what's interesting is, we don't know. Because it didn't matter. 
Was it the 12th of Rabiul Awal or 10th of Rabiul Awal? Was it in Rabiul Awal? Was it here? Was it there? Was it the Yom al Didn't really matter. These things didn't matter to the Arab and they didn't matter to the Muslims. And that's why even if you go on throughout the time of the Salaf, most of them we only know their death dates. We know when they died. Most of them we don't know when they were born. Because the idea of a birthday or the idea of, of, of mawlid or all these things were not known to the Muslims in the early generations. This was not something nobody even was concerned about. And that is why even when we look at the age of Aisha or, the, or, or, the, or when certain sahaba were born and so on, many of them were really not sure about the exact dates because the Arab did not have a calendar first and foremost. Right? Secondly, they weren't really concerned about it. It didn't really matter to them. So here, what was important now is that the battle began. Abraha ordered the strongest of his weapons. He wanted a shock and awe. He wanted the strongest force to go forward. And he ordered his soldiers to have Mahmud, the tank, the super weapon, to move forward first. Subhanallah, across the board in the Kutub of Tariq, we find that Mahmud would not move towards the Kaaba. Every time they pushed him, he sat down. They'd face him towards Sham, he would get up and walk with firm strength. They would face him towards Yemen, he would run. They would face him back towards Al Kaaba, he would sit down. They realized this is not something ordinary. Mahmud and all these elephants were trained weapons of war. And these were used, they continuously used him in the battles against the Arab tribes before that in, in Habasha and so on. So it's not like he wasn't trained or there was some kind of, it's not like he had a, you know, some, some of the people, subhanAllah, they, they have a hard time accepting mu'jizat and karamat, so they always want to give some kind of scientific explanation. No, it's a miracle from Allah. It's not like his leg was broken. When he got up towards Sham, he was perfectly fine. Got up towards Yemen, he was fine. But when he was faced towards the Kaaba, he would sit down. They would hit him with sticks that had hooked ends. Even small axes. They had small axes. They would hit him, even as Kutub of Tariq mentioned, they hit him on the head and the face. And the elephant would become enraged in, in, in and attack at these kinds of things. But he would sit down. Subhanallah, seeing this chaos now, Nufail ibn Habib. We mentioned Nufail ibn Habib. He was their only guide left. Right? So Abu Rughal had already died. Right? Now Nufail ibn Habib, he was a prisoner, but he kind of got away. And he went to Mahmud and he told him, Abruk, yani, Abruk, stay, Mahmud, or Irja, Rashidan. Yani, either stay where you're at or go back to where? Minjayta, yani, from the where you came. For verily you are in the holy land of Allah. Now again, subhanAllah, Nufail ibn Habib is a mushrik here as well. But they realize the sanctity of Mecca. They realize the sanctity of the Haram. And you have the Kaaba. So here he's telling Mahmud, now Mahmud is an elephant, he can't listen to you. He doesn't know English, he doesn't know Arabic, doesn't speak human, but Nufail was making a, a point. And Mahmud, by the will of Allah, he did not move. As I was writing this and looking up Ibn Hisham, Ibn Kathir, and all of these sources, 
I started to think, subhanAllah, these people should have seen this as a sign. And you should see this as a sign. And they should have taken ibrah, they should have taken a lesson from it. But they didn't. Instead, they used their infantry, their soldiers, and their army. Now, as I said, ulema of tarikh have had minimum said they had 60,000 soldiers with them. Many ulema said 70,000. But even if you take 60,000, there's an empty city in front of you. There's not like a, 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 a big deal to go and defeat it. So even without the elephant, they started to move forward. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala then, He tells us in the Qur'an, أَلَمْ تَرَ كَيْفَ فَعَلَ رَبُّكَ بِأَصْحَابِ الْفِيلِ Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala revealed these ayats at a time where the Ashab al-Fil had all died out. According to ulama of tarikh, none of them were alive when these ayat were revealed. Even though this is yani, early Meccan surah, but the people were not there. But Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, Alam tara. Didn't you see? And that tells you a very important lesson. Many times we want a sign. Like you know when we do da'wah, some people come to us and they say, show us a sign. If there is a God, tell him write God across the sky. You know, you know tell him a, a voice should come out of the ground and tell me there is one Allah and then I'll believe. First thing, Allah is not in need of you to believe. It's not Greek gods or something where they need your worship. Allah does not need any of us. If all of us made kufr, and the worst kufr, all together it would not demands take away from anything from the treasures and greatness of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. It is us who are in need of Allah. And here Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has shown that when clear signs were given, I mean, you look at other miracles that have happened with Isa ibn Maryam, with Musa, with, with Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa splitting of moons and waters coming out from the grounds and all of this. Even then there were people that didn't believe. So that's just an excuse. Here Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala telling them, didn't you, weren't you the people of Mecca? Didn't you remember that event that happened? He's bringing their attention to it. Even though Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala knows they didn't see it. This is a style of teaching. Right? Sometimes in durus, I will ask a question that I know the student doesn't know the answer to. But there is a point to grab their attention, so when you give them the answer, it will, it will sit in their memory, in their brain. So here Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala tells the people of Mecca and, and to us as well in the Qur'an, didn't you see how Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala dealt with the people of Fil? أَلَمْ يَجْعَلْ كَيْدَهُمْ فِي تَضْلِيلِ وَارْسَلَ عَلَيْهِمْ طَيْرًا أَبَابِيلٍ What does Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala Didn't Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala destroy their plan? And how did He destroy their plot, their plan? He sent upon them Ababil. Tayran, these are birds. Ababil, I'm not going to go deep into the tafsir here. But what we do know authentically from Ibn Abbas radiallahu anhuma and the Haq, the Tabi'i. Ababil, yani they were sent in groups after groups. Hassan al-Basri al-Qatada said, al-Kathira, ababil means that they were tayran, they were birds, but they were many. If we look at the different narrations, we find that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala sent droves of birds, flocks and flocks, from the side of the ocean, from the water side. Many different descriptions have been given. I'm not going to go deep into that. But what we do know that there were birds. 
and each one had three small rocks. But these were not regular rocks. We'll talk about this when we get there. So here, you have no Muslims. You have no Mujahideen. You have no people to stand and defend Baytullah. But does that mean that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is in need of them? No. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala brought his armies that only Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala knows who they are. Here now, flocks of birds came and they came with little rocks. If we look at the narrations about Arsala alayhim tayran ababil tarmihim bi hijaratim min sijil. Tayyib, hijara or rocks. But what is min sijil? Here we look at the tafsir here, like a tabari, Ibn Kathir, all of them mention that the Sahaba radiyanhum said that they had three rocks, one in their beak and one in each of their claws. Sijil, as has been mentioned uh, by Ibn Abbas and others, that this was a baked rock. Very interesting narration that I found um, that uh, Imam Suyuti has mentioned from Um Kurz. Al-Khuza'iyyah, she's also called Al-Ka'biyyah. And she said, I saw these and they were like the Yemeni pearls, right? And this is Juz' Dhafar, which are, and if I looked them up, they are these black and white types of uh, rocks. But another narration also mentioned that they were rocks with clay baked. Here Ibn Kathir and Tabari and others have mentioned that they were baked in the Nar of Jahannam. At-Tabari has mentioned narrations that each person that is hit had their name on it and these are the same type that were, that were the ones used for the destruction of Qawm Lut. Now, subhanallah, each one that fell, when it hit somebody, as the ulema of tafsir and tarikh from authentic narrations from Sahaba, radiallahu anhum, mentioned, it would enter one, if it entered the top, it would come out the bottom, destroying the person through. Such a destruction as Tabari in his tarikh says that there was nothing left of them to bury. They were destroyed in such a way, like as we see in the Quran, they will, you will mention, فَجَعَلَهُمْ كَأَسْفِمْ مَأْكُولٌ Like the straw or hay that has been chewed up by an animal. If you've ever been to like a farm, and you see a cacao or cattle or you know, buffalo, and you give them the, the, the hay to eat, once they've chewed and bits have dropped, it's, it's nothing, it's scattered, like dust. That's why Ibn Abbas in one of the narrations said, Katin, like they were like dirt. Subhanallah, and he, think about this. This is before chemical warfare, this is before the development of guns and bombs and, and all these types of things. Even... When we look in, look in the things that insan invents, they always copy the creation of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. I was recently on a plane. Right? And you know the wings of the plane, they're a little bit flexible. So when you're flying, they bend. So my daughter was sitting next to me. So she was like, Daji, the plane's going to fall. Look, the, bend, the wing's bending. I tell her, no, no, it's supposed to do that. right? And I realized, you know, because they take the design from birds. And how the the wings of birds are, and the bone marrow, and how they're hollowed for flight. And you realize that insan, what do we do? We just look at the creation of Allah and try to copy it. 
Even if you look at like, like using planes and, and bombing cities and all of that, uh, you know, this has happened centuries before planes were even invented. And look at how the power of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is. If you take a rock, even if you take it really high, and you drop it from its impact, it's not going to make somebody into mush, hey? But this is the power of Allah. What type of yani, creation of Allah was used for that baking, and how those rocks were made, and how Allah sent them? Subhanallah. They would go through elephants and make them into nothing. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala sent this as a warning, as a sign. But how many people still didn't take heed? How many people today don't take heed of this? How many people sitting with their Ayatul Shaitan or Hizbul Shaitan or all of them are sitting there talking about we're going to attack the Kaaba and we're going to take the Kaaba? Didn't you read the Quran? Come on. Take a lesson. Umm Kurz al-Khuza'iyah, she says, I, I, I saw these myself. In an authentic narration, Asma radiallahu anha also had a collection of them. She had collected some of them later on because Asma radiallahu she was older than Aisha radiallahu So at a time, she was able to get some of them. She had collected them and the Sahaba saw them and they narrated these. Aisha radiallahu says that I saw some of the in one of the narrations, she said, I saw two from the army of Ashab al-Fil. Now that's interesting, because we know when the Qur'an was revealed, they were finished. So she had to have been at an age where she recognized them. Khair, she said, I saw them, and they were disfigured, blinded, unable to speak, begging. Here, At-Tabari says that some of them were killed on impact. And some of them, as soon as the rocks would hit, it would come from one end, come out the other, they would be destroyed, wouldn't even be enough of them left to bury. But some of them, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala allowed them to live, even though they were disfigured and every one of them was hit. But allowed them to live, to be a sign for mankind to remember. Aisha radiyanha, she saw some of these people, and she described them and described their يعني, hideous appearance after being attacked. Now, at that time, when these rocks are falling, and people are watching elephants disintegrate, there was chaos. And they started, because the, the army that came from Habasha originally, and then from Yemen, they didn't know the Arabian Peninsula, obviously. So they had come here with the help of Arab guides, sellouts. So here... Now they were calling out to them. And the one we mentioned, Nufail ibn Habib. So they started saying, Ya Nufail, Ya Nufail, oh Nufail, like guide us, get us out of here. And Nufail, he said in a beautiful poem, he said, Ain al-Maghfir wa ilah al-Talib. And where are you going to go when, the, when Allah, the Creator, when, when God Himself is the one looking after, uh, who's after you? And then he said, Wal ashram maghloob ghayra ghalib. And he made it rhyme. He said, Al-Ashram, now he is defeated and he was not victorious. So he said this beautiful poem to say, where are you going to run to? <laughs> when Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has written something for you, where are you going to run to? 
You can change countries, you can change passwords, you can change names, you can hide, you can go get witness, witness protection, you can get whatever you want. If Allah has run something for you, where are you going to run to? What castle is going to protect you? What land are you going to go to? Where can Malak al-Mawt not go? You can put yourself on the bottom floor of the Pentagon and lock yourself in, <laughs> Malak al-Mawt will still find you there. Here, the main mutakabbir, prideful king, one who was going to destroy Baytullah, Abraha, Al-Tabri, Ibn Kathir, all of them, even Ibn Hajar, he discusses this in Fath al-Bari, says, when he was hit, he was hit in such a way, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala made it in such a way that he didn't die right away. That would be too easy of a death for him. He was hit in a way that caused his body parts to start falling off. And because the kafir always loves life. <laughs> so he wanted to save. He didn't say, you know, I should make tawbah or, you know, what have I done? No. He said, take me back to Sana'a. Take me back to Yemen, to my home base, and then I'm going to be fine. So his soldiers and whoever were also injured, they started to take him back. But this was a sign from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Ibn Kathir al-Bidayah al-Nihayah, he says that this was the hikmah of Allah. To show all of those Arab tribes that were defeated by Abraha, that look, you couldn't stand up to him. But Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala destroyed him. So now he's going back, tracing his footsteps. Every Arab tribe that was defeated by his army sees this thing. When he gets back to Sana'a, they said he looked like a newborn chick. You know when a, uh, a baby hen, chick, a little chick is born, you know it's got featherless, it's real weird looking. Yeah. It's just like a deformed little something. Abraha, strong king, he looked like that. Nose had fallen off, fingers had arms, things had fallen off, he just looked like a lump. But he made it all the way back to Sana'a and died there. As a lesson for everybody on the way. Subhanallah. When we talk about this, we as Muslims, no doubt we believe in this. Why? One, first and foremost, it's in the Qur'an. Secondly, it's in Sahih, a hadith. Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa has told us, Sahaba radiyanhum authentically have told us, the ulema of tariq have checked and reported this. But what's interesting to me is a lot of Orientalists, you know what Orientalist is? And it's not a racist word here. <laughs> An Orientalist is a kafir who studies Islam, to try to cause any issues. And some of the, mashallah, imma have taken them as shuyukh now, interestingly. When you study with a sheikh, with a alim, with a zahid, with a person of, of, of knowledge, it increases your yaqeen. What does it bring? Ithbat, itqan. What does it do? Huh? What does it do? Like a hundred people, nobody speaks. What does it do? It strengthens your dream. You become sure. When you study with a kafir, what does it do? It brings shak and shubuhat. And then you wonder why Yale brought you shak and shubuhat. When, when Sheikh Goldstein and, uh, is your professor, then that's what happens. So many Orientalists, they would kind of put doubt on this. I was reading some of their works. And they said, you know, we know Abraha existed, no doubt. All historians, kafir, Yahudi, Mulhid, atheist, whatever, they all agreed that he was person, they have paintings, they have coins with his face and all that, okay. 
They, they know that uh, Najashi at the time sent him and he conquered Yemen and all of those names, everything in accordance with the Quran, Hadith, yes. But they were like this attack on Mecca and this failed attack, we don't find in those writings. Right? We as Muslims have no doubt in the Quran. But interestingly, some of the Orientalists, they had found writings that they hid in France for years. But they have been published now. In 2009, they've been published where they published uh, in Paris some of the writings of uh, the people of Abraha in their native language. And they showed the references to this attack and this failed attack and his defeat. And, And those writings would say that it was written as a miraculous defeat. It wasn't a military defeat. And that was the end of him. And Scott Fitzgerald, Johnson, Francis Peters, and others from Orientalists today have agreed that there was such an attack and there was such a loss. And the writings that I found manuscripts also scanned for is the Himaranitic inscriptions published by uh, the University of Paris in French. And it's called Iwan Gajda. Might be mispronouncing that. Uh, But it was published in 2009. Pages 142 to 146, as have been translated, confirm that Christian Julian Robin and Dan Gibson, that translated that, have said, have confirmed that he did attack the Arabian Peninsula. And he was defeated in a miraculous defeat. Subhanallah. Yani, this is a miracle of the Quran that even the kuffar have now had to yani, accept. What, yani, what more signs do people need? Khair, we know the story up to here and most people end it. Yani Abraha was defeated, khalas. No, but there is more to it. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, yani he defended his land. Abraha, when he went back, he died. Abraha had a son, Yam, uh, Yaksam, who became, and he was born from a Yemeni mother. She was a noble woman that he had by force taken and yani through force had had children with her. Uh, Yaksam was his son who became the king after Abraha. At this time, there was a man, an Arab, and again not a Muslim, but an Arab, from the land of Yemen, and his name was Saif Dul Yazin. The Yazin, yani Ibn, Ibn the Yazin. Saif Ibn the Yazin. And he was a, a brave man, an intelligent man, and he saw that these people from Habasha had conquered their land, and had violated their women, they had raped and plundered and taken their wealth and enslaved their men. And he had a ghira. And he had this sense that this is wrong. And this is the people of ghira. And the people that don't have ghira, then they don't care who rules over them. They just want to make their money. They just want to submit and be safe and, you know, be safe, quote unquote. And, and they don't care. But the people of Ghira, they don't allow it. And amongst the Muslims as well, when we see the kafir enter the lands, the people of Ghira, they will not stand for it. And they will continue to strive and struggle until they're free. Here Saif, the Yazin, he stood up to try to take on Yaksam. But obviously he didn't have the manpower. He didn't have the ability to fight. So he went to the king of the Romans, Qaisar. And he asked for help. Qaisar was in, in, in cahoots, was in line with uh, Najashi and, and uh, Yaksam under the uh, protection of Najashi had the same coalition. So they didn't help him. So he decided to go to the opposite side. He went to Kisra. 
Kisra was the emperor, and that's a title, it's not a person, it's a title for the emperors of Persia. So now the Romans and Persians were enemies. And because the yani Najashi was aligned with the Romans, so Saif here thought that if I can uh, get the Persians on my side, they will give me some soldiers and I can then fight uh, the, the army of Abra, even though Abra is dead here. Now, at this time, Yaksam died. Masruq, his other brother, became the king. So, Masruq was now the king. Saif was going around trying to get help. To get to Kaysar uh, or Kisra was not easy. I mean, you can't just walk up to like a Persian king and be like, hey, help me out, right? That's not the way it works. Subhanallah, Ibn Kathir and other a'imma and ulema have mentioned a very interesting... Uh, most people don't think about this, but it's very important. How did the Persian kings yani, deal with the people? They weren't people that would walk around and talk to the people. Like Umar radiyallahu, subhanallah, yani he would sleep in the streets of Medina. Sword is hanging, no guards, no barriers, no crowns, no special, you know, ripped clothes. Gets tired, goes to sleep on the ground. Safe. Why? Because Allah protects him. He had no fear. But these kings, they were dhulam, yani they were oppressors, so they were always scared. <laughs> they didn't enjoy life. Right? So he wouldn't come out. Once a year, he would show himself from behind a hijab. It's <laughs> a little feminine, whatever, right? So he had a, a curtain. And hijab doesn't mean like a cloth on your head, by the way, right? He had a, a curtain that concealed him. And what he would do is a curtain, once a year he would have a day that the curtain would drop and he would be shown to the people and the people would all fall in sujood. They would make sujood. It was their peer, right? So they would make sajda to him. So, and in and, and time to do that, they would put his crown on his head. But out of his kibber, he didn't just have like a little crown, right? He had a huge crown. The ulema of tarikh have calculated it out, and I translating their weight system from that time onwards to one of my shiuch who calculated it out to be 90 kilograms, which is about 198.4 pounds. So his crown weighed about 200 pounds. As you can imagine, you cannot just pick that up and put it on your head like my crown here. Right? Right? You, they would have to have a chain that would lift it up, and then he would just sit underneath it and they would lower it, and he would be far away from the people that it would give the yani, uh, illusion that this 200 pound jewel entrusted crown is sitting on his head. Of course, I'm sure they could see the chain, but right? nobody's gonna say anything, right? It's a king with no clothes on kind of a thing, right? So he would sit and this crown would be lowered to his head, and then he would like wave at the people and they would make sujood, and that would be his once a year appearance behind guards and all that kind of thing. And then those that were wuzara, those that were like close to him would then come and ask questions. The regular people would not be able to get, even get close to him. Now here, when they went, and this day happened, and the hijab fell, and the crown was lowered onto his head, everybody, including Nu'man, Nu'man was the uh, Arab that was exiled. If you remember Nu'man from the earlier durus, he was exiled out of Yemen, and he is the one that got safe to this place. Safe didn't know how to get there, but Nu'man had lived under the Persian, so he took him, 
And he, even though he was a mushrik, he didn't worship, and he worshipped idols, he didn't worship the king, but mushrik doesn't care, they'll celebrate anything. Hanukkah, Halloween, doesn't care, they're a mushrik, right? The Muslim has to care. So here, he also made sujood to the king, even though he didn't worship him, but he doesn't care, doesn't have tawheed. Saif didn't. Now Saif is also a mushrik, but he didn't. He didn't make sujood. So the king, he's looking, and he's, everybody's making sujood to him, and he thinks he's all happy, and he sees one guy not doing it. So he gets upset. What's wrong with this guy? Bring him here. But SubhanAllah worked out in safe favor, right? So they brought him to the king. Now the king here, the Persian king, he told him, what's wrong with you? And he, everybody's making sujood. Why aren't you making sujood? Saif, he didn't say like I believe in Tawheed. As I said, he's not a Muslim. He said, I was too concerned with my worries. I even forgot where I was. And I was so worried. He said, what, are you, what can be that troubling that in front of all these people making sujood, you forgot to make the, say that to me? He says, because my land of Yemen has been taken by these uh, people from Habasha, and they have you know, raped women and killed, and, and they've taken the wealth of my land and sent it to Habasha and this on, and I'm so worried about my people and my land that I lost my mind. I didn't even know where I was. So the king here became impressed. Like, this guy was really worried. He goes, so what do you need? He said, oh, king of Persia, these are your enemies. They are aligned with the Romans. Give me your army. I will go and fight with them. And Saif, yani, uh, he was known to be a brave man. So he said, I will fight, but I need more soldiers with me to, uh, to fight an army of that size. The king here now collected his wazara and his advisors. Right? And he told them, okay, what should we do? Should we attack? And it might be good for us to attack our enemy. They said, why are we going to get involved? And they're Arab. I mean, they were nothing to begin with. And it's between them and whoever they have to deal with. Why would we send our armies and put them in danger and get them killed? Let them rot. So the king comes back to Saif and he tells him that I will give you 10,000 wealth. Whatever was the currency of the Persians. Some of the ulema wrote dinar and dirham because this would not be an Arab currency, it would be in the Persian currency, but it was a lot of money. I will give you 10,000 gold coins, let's say, and you go and do what you can, but I can't, I can't endanger my army. Saif, he took that money and he gave it out to the people. 10,000 gold coins, he just started giving it out. Now, the king gets this news, oh great king, you gave him this generous, large amount of money, and he just gave it away. King's like, what the hell? <laughs> what's wrong with this guy? Bring him, brought him back. He's like, what's wrong with you? I gave you 10,000, you just gave it away to people? He said, uh, he said you're worried about 10,000. I'm worried about my land of Yemen where our mountains are made of gold and silver. Now, obviously the mountains weren't made of gold and silver, but and there was mubalaka there. He was trying to exaggerate, but he meant, that the land of Yemen is rich and fertile and has many precious gems and things, and 10,000 is nothing. Now the king realized something here. He said, this guy is not after money. You know, those that are Abdul Dinar and Abdul Dirham and those that are just out to make money, you will never win. Even if you want to go fight jihad, but you're doing it to get paid, you're not going to win. You want to give da'wah because you want to make money, you're not going to be successful. You want to start a YouTube channel, but your point is to make money, you're not going to be successful. Why? Because success comes with ikhlas. So success comes with sincerity. Even if you're not doing it mukhlisan lillah, and if you're doing it mukhlisan for whatever your niyyah may be. 
If your niyyah is to, for your qawm, for your people, when you're sincere, you're not worried about filling your own pockets, then Allah will give you that, but then you have nothing in the akhirah. But if your niyyah is for Allah, Allah will bring you the wealth. Allah will bring you the honor. Allah will bring you the glory. But Allah will save the best, the reward for the akhirah as well. So those that do it for money, you will see, I mean, somebody will go and put a lot of money in, and, and governments will give you money and you will take that money, but you will never find success. Here, when the king realized that Saif was not in it for money, he went back to his wuzara again. He said, look, we got to help this guy. And there must be great riches in Yemen. And he greed, obviously the Persians weren't in it for Allah's sake either. So he said, look, there is money in Yemen. And if the Romans are that interested, there must be some wealth there. So let's, let's help him out. His, his, his advisor said, look, we have an army, we have battles back and forth with the Romans, we can't put them at risk. We need them here to protect our life. Again, worried about their lives. Right? But they made a really interesting plot, and that's something very interesting people don't know about. But ulama of tarikh have recorded it authentically. They said, we will take all of our criminals from the jails, murderers, rapists, anarchists, those that try to topple the government, you know, re- re- rebels, we'll take all of them, make a unit and give them to safe to go fight with. <laughs> it was like the Australia of the time. <laughs> no offense to our brothers and sisters watching from Australia. Right? So they took all of the criminals and they made a battalion and they told safe there is 800 of them. Take them and some weapons and some money and things like this. And they gave Wahriz was one of the Persian generals. And he was brave and intelligent, well-known. They gave one general and then the rest of these criminals and they sent him. And the reason they gave Wahriz was, as Ibn Kathir says, because the Persians would not allow a non-Persian to lead. Even in this situation, they said, we cannot let an Arab be a leader. So we will put one Persian just so that he can lead. <laughs> so it can be under our banner. And they sent. Saif here collected the Arab tribes Numbering, as Tabari says, 7,500, and they went to battle Masruq. Masruq's army was much bigger, but after Abraha and what happened to him, and Masruq being a weaker king, they weren't very good at, at the battle. They, they came, they met, and they fought. And during the battle, Wahriz, he asked them, where is Masruq? Now, Masruq was afraid of death, as every kafir is. Right? So, what did he do? He would be on an elephant, but then he would change. Like he would keep changing positions, so the enemy doesn't know where they are. If he was always on one place, then the enemy would attack the king. So he would be on an elephant, then he would switch clothing, he would switch positions, he would get on a horse. Then he would get on a camel, he would be switching. Wahriz, he said, where is he? His spies told him he's on an elephant. He says, I can't touch him, leave him. He told him, where is he now? He's on a camel. He told him, okay, can't touch him. Where is he on a horse? Where is he? He was on a mule. He said, a mule is the son of a donkey. He actually said, Ibn Himar, right? That's what the mention tariq. I'm not making that up, right? He said, it's not a son of a donkey. So you have a donkey on the son of a donkey. Now I can attack him. So he attacked him and he killed him. Masruq was killed. And here, the Abyssinian rule of Yemen ended with four kings that passed. Iriyat being the first and original but he was killed by Abraha, Abraha being destroyed by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, Yaksam dying, and Masruq being killed by Wahriz and the Persian army. Here now, the Abyssinians were defeated, and the Persians, they took control of Yemen. Interestingly, Wahriz, when he was going to Sana'a, 
they had gates for the city. And the gates were big doors, so they would lock them. If you ever go to an old city, you'll find gates. And they would be locked to stop the people. So when he was going, he saw the gate, but it was not high enough for his flag. His flag was very high. So instead of bending, this is how much kibr he had, instead of bending the flag to go in, he had the gate destroyed, so the flag goes straight in. And he started to rule there. When he died, his son took over, and his son and his son, four generations passed, until the new king of Persia was displeased with their way of ruling. And he had them removed, and he had Bahzan, radiallahu anhu, who will become a sahabi later, become the king the Persian ruler of Yemen. And this is the time that Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa was born. And we'll continue with that in the next dars, inshaAllah ta'ala.